It's time for another episode of Clothes Horse, the podcast that admits polyester makes us smell like a mixture of skunk and chili. I'm your host, Amanda. In today's episode, we will be discussing Made in the USA. Is making all of our stuff here the way we save the world, or is it just savvy marketing? I bet you can already guess what the answer is. We can't talk about Made in the USA without talking about American Apparel and therefore Dove Charney. So just to give you a content warning, we will be talking briefly about sexual harassment and the culture of American Apparel. So there will be a few minutes mid-episode that are inappropriate for some listeners. There's another aspect to American Apparel, and it's only sexy if you love some manufacturing and logistics talk, which I do, and that's vertical manufacturing. American Apparel had a vertical manufacturing model. Okay, at this point I should tell you that I recorded a section with today's guest Amy about vertical manufacturing, what it is, how common it is, all the important deets. But there's something weird going on with the audio in that section, and I just couldn't make it work. So now I'm going to do my best to explain it on Amy's behalf. Amy described it this way. Get ready for a great metaphor. It's like you're making dinner. So you grow the vegetables, you slaughter the chicken, you cook the food, and then you serve it. Basically, you're owning the process from beginning to end. In an ideal, most literal version of this, you would grow the cotton, turn it into yarn, and then weave that into some fabric, dye it, print it, wash it, etc., then sew it into a garment and sell it. And to be clear, this pure version of vertical manufacturing is pretty rare. Like, you might hear about Apple also buying a factory that makes the computer chips, but they probably aren't making the silicon in the chips. And by the way, for the you learn something new every day file, it turns out that silicon is made of sand, but very specific sand with high quartz content. Yeah, that's right. I googled how to make a computer chip. (laughs) In American Apparel's case, they were making their fabric. I couldn't find any evidence anywhere on the internet that they were growing their own cotton. Everything was designed and developed at the factory in downtown LA. And then it was sewed in the very same place, in that factory that the brand owned. But the company did not own the factories that were making the trims like zippers and snaps. And of course, as the brand grew, there was speculation that some fabrics and other components were coming from overseas. Obviously, when they expanded into highly specialized categories like shoes, I mean, I don't know if you remember those amazing jellies, but I still own a pair. Those shoes came from overseas. It's it's impossible to make a pair of shoes in the very same factory as t-shirts and bodysuits. The machines are wildly different. The workers have a completely different skill set and on and on. Vertical manufacturing is not that common. It's really expensive. Owning multiple factories, managing said factories, paying the employees, maintaining the equipment, that requires the kind of capital that most brands and retailers just don't have. Even companies that are massive, like Gap or Target, aren't vertical. And furthermore, as I touched on earlier with American Apparel, you can't make multiple types of things in the same factory. Everything is specialized. American Apparel was able to be vertical because most of their product was knit fabric. So it it could all be made in the same place. And it was the same sort of sewing skill set required. But when they added woven button-up shirts and tennis skirts to the assortment, it required a lot of retraining for their team. But imagine if they decided to do sweaters or jeans. Okay, to be fair, I know they tried some of these things, but they were made elsewhere because sweaters require different equipment and workers, just like shoes. It's easier to be vertical if you're manufacturing one kind of idea, like denim, for example. It's all the same fabric, so the sewing process is similar. So you can make it all in one factory, but add in sweaters or jewelry, and you're looking at buying another factory and a whole new set of machinery and employees. Being vertical limits your product offering, which feels risky to brands and retailers, especially right now. Remember, as we've discussed before, retailers live in fear of missing the next big trend or investing heavily into the wrong product. So they need a lot of variety at a low risk. Buying a factory isn't low risk. Okay, in case you've already forgotten, which I almost did, today's episode is about Made in the USA. 
According to a 2015 Consumer Reports survey, almost 8 in 10 American consumers say they would rather buy an American-made product than an imported one. So, wow. There's definitely some money to be made off of product that's, well, made in the USA. Okay. (laughs) What I'm about to say should not surprise you. Sometimes items bearing a Made in the USA label weren't made in the USA. You're shocked, aren't you? And of course, occasionally it's an outright lie. The FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, tries to regulate misleading and false uses of the label, but there's just so much stuff being sold in the U.S. every single day that it's nearly impossible to keep tabs on all of it. But also, there's some legal leeway here. In 1997, the FTC spelled out a policy around it. Here it goes. This is the official language. U.S. manufacturing cost must constitute 75% of the manufacturing costs for the product and, and the product was last substantially transformed in the United States. So it has to be mostly made in the United States, including the materials and the most important, most substantially transformed part of the process has to happen in the USA, which when we're talking about clothing would be the sewing. So using a hoodie as an example, maybe the zipper, eyelets, and drawstring were made outside the country. Meanwhile, the knit fabric was made here, which is pretty common. We still make a lot of knit fabric here. I mean, not a ton, but it happens. And then the actual sewing would happen here too. Boom. Slam a made in the USA label on that guy. Call it a day. Rake in the dough. In general, while a garment may have been sewn here, Most of the components, including the fabric, are imported. We we just don't have many textile mills left here in the U.S., and we certainly aren't making trims. It's ironic because the U.S. is one of the top cotton producers in the world, so we could be making a lot of clothes here. Getting back to the FTC language, if you want to stay on the good side of the FTC, 75% of the cost of making the product has to happen in the U.S., So yeah, that's going to be the sewing, which is expensive, but also some of the material will have to originate here too. And that's hard. That's hard. So here's an example. In 2016, the FTC ordered Shinola to stop using where America is made as a slogan as, according to the FTC, this is the exact quote, 100% of the cost of materials used to make certain watches is attributable to imported materials. The movements on the watch were made in Thailand, and the dials, hands, cases, crystals, and buckles were made in China. Meanwhile, the actual building of the watches was done here, but that just, that just wasn't enough. Like Some of those components needed to be made here in the United States. And if Shinola could have just made a few of them here, they could have continued using the slogan. So one last thing before we get into the episode... There's been a long-time urban legend conspiracy theory about a town in Japan renaming itself USA, spelled U-S-A, so that the inhabitants could sell product labeled Made in the USA to poor, unsuspecting Americans. I mean, it's a genius idea, right? This story is so widespread that I heard it from not one, but two of my uncles. (laughs) One uncle said it was an island in the Pacific Ocean, which... To be fair, Japan is an island in the Pacific. However, USA is not a manufacturing hub. And the town itself has existed since the 8th century, predating the good old United States of America. I mean, maybe it was one big long con? (laughs) Probably not. Our production expert Amy is back again today to talk about Made in the USA, why it's not that common, and how it seems to be picking up a bit. Maybe she'll give you some advice, too, about how to spend your money. And of course, we're going to talk about good old American apparel. So let's do this. All right. I'm excited to bring Amy back for this episode. You might remember her from the last episode. Spoiler alert, we are recording these the same day, so it feels funny to say that. And that's why we're laughing. Today, we're going to talk about Made in the USA. Uh, there's so much to unpack here, and I think we all have an expectation that Made in the USA is somehow more premium 
than made anywhere else. And I, I hope that if we've done a good job on our previous episodes, you know that's not true, but we're going to break it down for you a little bit and tell you a little bit more about the history and the state of the industry here in the United States. Amy, I have already quoted you on episode one and you weren't even on it. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Talking about uh, Made in the USA and like what it really means. So do you want to like say your quote there? Yeah, basically, I think you were talking, we were talking about greenwashing and then kind of segued into the Made in the USA. And so I was saying that, you know, uh, Made in the USA is greenwashing before greenwashing because ultimately what it comes down to is, it's just really good marketing, capitalizing on our love of patriotism. <laughs> I love that because it's sort of like, even if you think you're not patriotic, you do somehow think stuff's more premium if it's made here. So I guess that means you are patriotic and you just didn't know it. Yeah. Everybody should do some reflection about that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I, I thought I would start with the history of what's been going on with production, both in the United States and out of the United States and why it's moved. And we did talk in episode one about how there has been this shift out of the United States. So during the 1960s, 95% of all clothing worn in the U.S. was made in America. So almost everything. I mean, I, I would expect that that would mean that if you opened your closet, almost everything in there would have been sewn here or possibly everything. So now, right now in 2020, more than 95% of the clothing sold in the United States is imported from abroad. So a totally reverse situation. But recent data does show that Made in the USA is trying to make a comeback. So to be clear, I feel like Amy and I are going to say this a hundred times. Made in the USA is not always better. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's about the same. And we're going to unpack that. It's important to remind everybody that China or other countries is not synonymous with cheap or bad quality. I mean, do you remember when we were kids where things would say made in Taiwan and that would be like a joke, like, oh, it's a crappy plastic thing. It's made in Taiwan. I don't even know if they make anything in Taiwan now, but that was like a sticker you would see a lot. Yeah. It was like, if you got like, but they were like, if you got something that was made in another country, you kind of felt fancy. I don't know <laughs> if you shared that feeling, but it was like, ooh, ooh exotic. Where's Turkey? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe when we were kids, it was more exotic. So, chi- like, as we've said, like, China is not synonymous with cheap or bad quality. And yes, a lot of fast fashion comes out of there, but also all kinds of other stuff comes out at every price point. You can find good, bad, cheap, expensive anywhere. It has nothing to do with the country of origin. And you can certainly find all of those things here as well. So, why did apparel manufacturing shift out of the United States? Because that's a that's a pretty big shift. Basically, almost everything was made here. Now, almost nothing is. And even by the 1990s, the shift out of the United States had, had begun. About half of Americans' clothes were made in the United States. And that still is a huge, huge amount in comparison to where we are right now. Basically, the trade rules began to liberalize. Conservative people are definitely against these uh, trade agreements, and you've definitely heard Trump speak ill of them many times, and probably Mitch McConnell too. And one of the agreements we're going to talk about, NAFTA, was passed during the Clinton administration. So I think it's really seen as like those damn liberals and their trade agreements. But a lot of things happened all at once. First, China joined the World Trade Organization, and that really opened up a lot of channels right there. Like China wasn't a huge partner with us before then. And then NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement, was signed in 1994. So that was primarily uh, Mexico. United States and Canada, North America, right? And then in 2005, the Central American Free Trade Agreement was signed. And so that was included Central America in our trade agreements. And for one, and I think Amy might have touched on this in the last episode, uh, it kind of removed the tariffs or maybe completely removed the tariffs on a lot of apparel and other goods. So that it was cheaper to make these things outside of the United States, you could to take it to Mexico or Central America. But more importantly, these agreements sort of took this like limit that existed on how much you could import from tree. It took it took that limit away. So there used to be a limit on how much you could import from China in terms of clothing, how much you could import from India, et cetera. And those all went away. Now you could import as much stuff as you wanted all the time. And guess what? We we did because labor and materials were so much cheaper outside the United States. I mean, for one, we had a really strong dollar, so that ensured that labor automatically was more affordable, but also the cost of living and wage expectations in these countries were much, much lower. 
And furthermore, and that this part can be kind of devastating, different countries, provinces, and towns had less regulations in place in terms of factory safety and environmental responsibility. This has slowly shifted over time, and you know, my hope is that it will continue to, but now the factories, on top of being cheaper and maybe having less restrictions, they also, you know, they make better product faster. So there's no reason to bring it back to the United States. We are starting to see that shift. It's slow. I mean, there are a lot of positive attributes to manufacturing in the United States. One, it's cheaper from a transportation perspective, so you don't have to splurge on air shipping to get here in time. You're not going to worry about duties. The logistics all around are much so much easier. And if you've ever had to deal with a key shipment that you need for some marketing story being stuck in customs, you know why it's so much better to make stuff here because that has happened to me so many times. And you know what, like for years, it was cheaper to make stuff in China. And I'm using China as an example, but just abroad in general because of the labor costs. But now manufacturing is slowly being mechanized, i.e. machines are doing the work. And so it's becoming less expensive. I guess we are going to be replaced by our robot overlords at some point. So one example of this, and Amy might be able to explain this better, but basically now you can knit a t-shirt inside a tube instead of cutting up the pieces and sewing it together. Am I explaining that right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's just kind of funny because it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if funny is the right word, but it amuses me. That's how t-shirts used to be made. They used to be made in a tube and then they stopped? Used to be made in the tube. You know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for, for changing things out, but it's just, you know, bringing the the movement to bring things back is really kind of having to to reestablish that infrastructure. Basically, we went from having skilled labor and, you know, facilities, machineries and, and all these different components to to taking advantage of the opportunities overseas and now we're kind of reacting to it, right? And saying like, well, you know, maybe we are really patriotic and and we do want to bring things home and and how can we best do it? So it's it's kind of like, well, we've got to got to go back to square one. That's, that's, yeah, that's how t-shirts used to be made. It's really important to remind everyone that just because we're talking about bringing the garment industry and manufacturing back to the United States, doesn't mean there are going to be more jobs because automation is a key component in making it more affordable to manufacture in the United States. I've heard the president talk about like, we're going to bring all these jobs back. But the reality that Amy touched on is like, people don't have the skills just to sew a t-shirt here. You know, like it would be a huge undertaking. It's a different, it's a different conversation you're bringing potentially. I mean, you know, it's all scalable, right? But like on a Mm -hmm. mass scale, you're bringing the production home, but you're not necessarily creating a bunch of jobs. If you think it, you know, most people have seen uh, car commercials and they do, um, the, you know, the, the inside of the factory and everything. And it, it's all, it's, it's just that the workers, obviously they're, you know, doing these incredibly key things to make sure that your car is assembled correctly, but the machines are, you know, screwing in the bolts. Whereas, uh, you know, in the industrial revolution, like that's what we were doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the, it's the, the production can come home, but it's not a guarantee of any jobs, not with automation. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you read that book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I, whenever, <laughs> whenever I think about automation and factories, I think of that book and only because his dad's job at the toothpaste factory was to screw the caps on the tubes. Yeah, yeah. And that 100% is not a job anymore. Definitely a machine is doing that. So well, I mean, that that was not even a job when like, you know, Laverne and Shirley think about that show's intro, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good call. (laughs) So that's all I know about manufacturing are those two examples. Yes, those are the two examples. Uh, That's all I know. So another thing, you know, just to reiterate again, there's this notion that made in the USA is somehow more premium. And, you know, in some cases that can be true, but even still, it's pretty complicated. So I think when you want to talk about made in the USA, especially uh, this idea of it being like an aspirational lifestyle, like it being premium, you can't have that conversation without talking about American apparel. Amy, I was talking to someone about American apparel the other day and they didn't know what it was and they didn't know who Jeb Charney was, but they were a lot younger than us. And I, it was so shocking to me because I feel like this era of American apparel and Dove Charney was like such a part of our 
culture when we were a certain age, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't even think about, think of anyone right now in the American landscape who is remotely similar. And I also was, as I was reviewing this story in my mind, I was thinking like, there's no way that this brand could exist the way it did then now in this like post me too era. Like it just couldn't happen. I hope. Absolutely not. No, like the whole, the whole foundation. I mean, you know, from a vertical manufacturing point of view, that's one thing, but like from a, from a brand point of view, from an ethics point of view, oh, absolutely. It completely does not age well. It definitely does not. I mean, as I was like thinking through the key stories, so American Apparel is a complicated, I have complicated feelings about it, as does Amy, because on one hand, something really incredible was happening here, right? But on the other hand, some really fucked up shit was happening too. So American Apparel was founded by Canadian businessman Dove Charney in 1989. It's kind of almost impossible to talk about American Apparel without talking about Dove Charney, but I'm going to try to skip through that just for a few moments, just so I can tell you sort of the background and how the business grew but then it's going to become really important. So in 1997, American Apparel moved to LA. And at this point, their product was primarily teased, generally used as blanks for printing by other brands. At this point, uh, Dove Charney was using a subcontractor named Sam Lin to do the sewing, but it was happening in LA. A few years later, they became partners because they realized they were working so much together. And I think they brought different things to the table that were important for growing a business. And at that point in time, they moved into the huge complex in downtown LA that you might recognize as the American Apparel Factory Complex. In fact, it's still there. It's empty. Well, it's kind of empty. They're turning it gradually into like fancy loft apartments and boutiques. And they're trying to make it into a scene because it's a huge complex. Yeah. If those walls could talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they could talk. I mean, really. Uh, and, you know, even at this point when they moved into this huge complex, if you've seen it in real life or maybe you want to Google it, I mean, we're talking a huge, huge factory. They were still just making blank tees for screen printer- printers. I mean, this is the era of like every band going on tour and every brand selling ironic graphic tees or logo tees. And so like that need for tees in the United States was so huge. But, you know, Charney, he like he saw that there there was a ceiling to what that business could be. And so he wanted to make a move into retail, meaning like he wanted to open stores and he wanted American Apparel to be a brand beyond just a supplier of blank tees. So the assortment was expanded to include, I mean, all kinds of categories over the years, but like underwear, bodysuits, dresses. Like I remember they had those like thigh high, like athletic socks and it was, it was all knit for the most part in the beginning. And it didn't look like anything else you could buy on the market at that time. And remember they were making all this stuff in downtown LA. By this point, a lot of stuff was not being made in the United States, and to be fair, it, it was a good mission. The workers in the factory were paid well. They had benefits like health insurance and free lunch. And generally, the conditions in the factory were good. Okay, but now we're going to talk about Dove. <laughs> and I feel like <laughs> if you've ever lived in LA, every person you meet has a story about Dove Charney because he was in the scene at that point. For all of the work that Dove Charney put in to create this vertical company that treated its factory employees well, like this is where it gets complicated to me because he did all that great stuff, but then he was also creating a toxic, like incredibly sexual work environment. I cannot underscore. I feel like the phrase inc- incredibly sexual work environment is almost too like sanitized. Mm-hmm. And that was that that sexy environment may not have existed in the factory, but it definitely existed in the offices and the retail stores. I mean, honestly, we could do a whole episode that was just stories from that, that we like that era that we collected from the internet and our friends. So I won't go into too much detail, but I mean, here, here are a few gems. So all employees in the stores and in the office were forced to sign an NDA. And this was an era where you didn't sign a lot of NDAs at work. It's, it's a lot more commonplace now, but it, it wasn't back then. I'm being really shocked by this. And basically you were signing agreement saying that you accepted that American Apparel was a sexual environment and you wouldn't try to sue over it. I mean, that is crazy. <laughs> I try to imagine any job I've had having to like agree to being okay with that. And this sexual environment started at the top. Charney was famously quoted as saying, sleeping with people you work with is unavoidable. And here's where we get to that point where we're like, this could not exist in 2020. So 
some other gems about about Dove here is that he was also the photographer behind most of the company's most famous marketing shoots. And if you're not familiar, it was always almost naked women. They were always strangely oily looking. I don't know what was going on there. And, you know, crotch shots. And it was very sexual. It had this like 70s porn vibe in terms of the lighting. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, the, the garments, I mean, just to interject, like the garments themselves were really I mean, it's basic. We're talking about different, you know, weights and colors of knit fabrics and, and you know, ba- the basic garments you can make with them. So kind of merging that like staleness of, you know, a T-shirt to now all of a sudden it's like, oh, a T-shirt with nipples, um, you know, because it's it's shot in a really provocative way. And uh, yeah, definitely not something that you would see today. I mean, you know, there's a long, long history of sex selling. Um, but this was for its time, really overt about it and, and unapologetic. I mean, I'm not like an uptight person and there would be times where I'd see a billboard like on Sunset Boulevard that was like, you could practically see the girl's pubes in the photo. I mean, it would, it larger than life. And so, so Dove is, is doing these photo shoots himself. I mean, yeah, he's like running this huge business, but he also has totally tons of time to do sexy photo shoots. And he was legendary for the creepiness, the creep factor in these photo shoots where he liked to work in the nude. So he'd be completely naked shooting these girls that were often pretty young, often store employees, uh, not professional models, not really knowing what they should be expecting, like what the level of professionality should be. And he was also known for gifting dildos to his favorite models. So, I mean, the this is just so gross. I can't even believe I had to type out the word dildo to talk about this. Um, at one point, he masturbated in front of Claudine Coe, who was a reporter for Jane Magazine, RIP, one of my favorite magazines. He masturbated in front of her as she was interviewing him and, and while giving a speech about how it's really important to masturbate in front of women. Once again, this is a guy who's a CEO of a huge brand that is making all of these inroads in terms of ethical manufacturing in the United States. So needless to say, eventually all of this was his downfall. And it took a lot longer than you would think. I feel like this process was maybe five years at least in the making. It just lawsuit after lawsuit for sexual harassment and other related workplace violations. And based on the stories I've heard out there and the little bit of press that's come out in the past few years, I, I think this was like the tip of the iceberg. Like there was a lot more really messed up stuff happening in that in that office. So eventually the company reached a point of bankruptcy. And yes, all of these subtle lawsuits were a part of it, but also they were just overextending. There were so many stores. I mean, it seemed like for a while there were as many American apparel stores as Starbucks in some cities, just way too many. And they never seemed busy. So actually, like now that we're talking about this, I feel like we have to do an American Apparel episode someday because I. Yeah, it's, it's it's like its own animal. Yeah, it is. And, and, and you like we've talked in other episodes about how sometimes smaller brands lose money because they don't have efficient logistics. Like they're just not moving inventory around in the most efficient way. They're spending money that they didn't need to. And there's definitely a lot of that going on there. But it was it was a, it was a mess. So. There were all kinds of reorganizations I, and many times where some sort of venture capitalist investment firm swooped in to try to save the company. I mean, this happened multiple times. There was a weird like stock buyback thing. I mean, there was just all kinds of stuff. But eventually, one of the people who had swooped in to, to try to save the company threw Dove out. And it was it was an ugly breakup. Like he tried to come out, multiple, come back multiple times. There were lawsuits. He was angry. I heard many stories about him being wasted and angry all over LA at this time, but somehow they managed to hold him off. And all of that legal action continued to drain the company. And not to mention that after a certain point, no one was interested in all these sexy American apparel clothes anymore. It seemed dated, you know, it had never evolved with the times. And so then, and this is to me is like maybe the saddest part of it all is that Gildan bought American Apparel. And I would say for a long time, back when American Apparel's primary business was making blank tees, Gildan was probably their biggest rival. And now Gildan owns American Apparel. And so all the stores closed and the business lives on sort of online. I mean, I 
it seems like they're trying to sell the same product. I, I just don't know who's buying it. You would think after all of this, or maybe you wouldn't think this, but maybe you would think that Dove Charney would say, you know what? I think I've learned a lesson. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to get my life together. When I upload this episode, I'm going to include in the show notes, another podcast season that is about Dove Charney that I think will be really fascinating for you if you want to learn more about who this guy is. Because since he was ousted from American Apparel, he's been trying to start his own brand. It's called LA Apparel. Check out the website because it looks exactly like American Apparel. Like I'm sure he's still taking the photos. The assortment is very similar. It's super sexy. Somehow the models are all oily looking still. Everything's made in LA, which, okay, cool. But once again, I don't think in the culture that we live in now, this kind of stuff is is cool anymore or even acceptable. So I don't think that the brand has been picking up a lot of momentum because it's been around for several years. So I had totally forgotten about it, actually. And then in June, a physician reached out to the LA Health Department to express concern about the LA Apparel Factory being a hotspot for COVID. And at that point, about 150 employees had tested positive for COVID. So you know there's a link to work, right? The health department swooped in and discovered that social distancing wasn't being implemented. Workers were separated by cardboard instead of the mandated plexiglass. And the thought of all of that just like germ-soaked cardboard is so disgusting to me. I know, right? Just so gross. And also hand sanitizer and masks weren't in use. Ironically... They were making masks at this factory. So the factory closed at the direction of the city, thank God, but somehow reopened shortly after with all new employees. So now, as of last week, when the city swooped in again to close the factory, 300 employees have been diagnosed with COVID and four have died. So, I mean, I could go on about this for hours. I always feel that... When you hear these stories about brands, so going back to even the era of American Apparel, when you hear about the leader being just an asshole, maybe they're racist, maybe they're fat phobic, or they're just a huge ego, I feel like that is like where there's smoke, there's fire. So if someone's being that shitty to the office employees, other stuff is going on under the under the covers there, right? And like probably there's going to be other abuse down the road. And I think this is a really prime example of that. So- Amy, I have a question for you. Okay. Would you rather buy something from a company that paid a fair wage and treated the factory employees well, but it was led by this total sex creep who created a culture of fear and humiliation for the other employees? Or would you rather buy something that was made in China so you don't know exactly what people were paid? It wasn't made in the USA, you know, so it's it's being outsourced, but you knew that no one was being sexually harassed along the way. Like, which of those... Which one would you rather buy? I mean, you know, the the Dove Charney and LA Apparel is like a, a fabulously drastic example and it is the 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 mark on, you know, the negative mark on manufacturing in LA that it'll take unfortunately a lot of really good people doing really good things to upright that reputation. But, you know, for your question, it's like I'm I'm definitely not choosing the sex pest. I mean, either. I'd rather take my chances, right? Yeah. And, and you know, for my point, you know, maybe I'm coming at it from, um, you know, different mind frame than a consumer would. But I at least know, you know, because I do have audits and reporting and, and, and transparency to, to, a, to a certain level in, with my import suppliers, I know they're going to get paid. I can see, I can see their time cards. You know, these are all things that are reasonable. You know, I don't know if, you know, somebody made somebody uncomfortable one day, but if someone like Dove, who's so blatantly brazen and and to your point, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. It's like this, this is where I can really step up and support these types of boycotts. Why does this brand even exist? I, I know. And, you know, I think, I mean, I've been thinking about this all day. No one questioned it. Everybody knew all this stuff was out in the open almost from day one. Like everybody knew all along that Dove Charney was just this like 
harasser, like this just pervert, someone who just could not keep it under control, was like abusing people because he's also famous for having a really terrible temper and being very verbally abusive to his team, just micromanaging every aspect of the business. Like the stores were required to take photos of all their employees and send them to him so he could make sure everybody was hot enough. And if they weren't, they would be fired. I mean, that's illegal and, you know, also unethical. But once again, this was all out in the open. American Apparel was like the brand. Everybody bought everything there and it didn't fit that well. And the quality wasn't that great, but it like, I don't know what he did there, but somehow he built this brand that at that point was bulletproof. Just if you wore it, it meant you were cool. It meant that you like partied pretty hard and you probably had a pretty sexy life and you got all the best drugs and you listened to good music and it was like a badge, right? And then, you know, over time, of course, then less cool people, if you will, started buying it, like lost its cachet. And then people sort of started to care about all the abuses that were going on at the company. And I, th- I think you're right. He did a lot of damage to the idea of making clothes in L.A., but he's not he's not the only one. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Don't worry. Plenty of other people are around to do shitty things. What what a world. I think that we also probably assume that made in the USA always means fair wages and ethical production. And that is 100% not true. Um, no matter what country you live in, there are people there who are doing shady things. We know that, right? Last year, there was a big brouhaha in the news. According to a New York Times report, the Department of Labor launched an investigation into Fashion Nova. It, and that, that, that investigation actually began in 2016. And it found that the brand worked with contractors that pay its LA-based workforce as little as two seventy-seven dollars an hour. So once again, Fashion Nova did not own these factories, but they were working with factories that were paying people this little bit of money. So ultimately... <laughs> Fashion Nova probably didn't know that people were being paid two seventy seven an hour, but the owners of these factories were making that call. Like they were, they were like, "This so I can afford to pay this person." But then again, Fashion Nova was pushing the contractors so hard on costs that, like, well, this is this is what happens. I mean, you can't make clothes as cheaply as Fashion Nova is. If you haven't been on their site, go check it out. Like, I'm shocked by how cheap some of it is. You can't make stuff that cheaply without something bad happening somewhere along the line. The same year, uh, the same investigation revealed that L.A. factories that were manufacturing Fashion Nova clothing owed $3.8 million in back pay to hundreds of workers. And at that point, Fashion Nova would proudly say that 80% of its supply was made in the United States. I mean, for 2017, 2018, like that's huge knowing how the trend has been. But since then, they have moved away from producing in the United States. So in 2019, about half, maybe a little bit less than half of their product was made here in the U.S., and it's even less this year. So I don't. I, I am assuming that probably Fashion Nova moved stuff overseas because there's a little bit less oversight, and it's probably possible to make things more cheaply there. But... I guess I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like there is a negative aspect to some of the manufacturing in LA. But as Amy will also talk about, there are good people doing good things in LA. It's 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 a mixed bag. So it seems like as of right now, the manufacturing in the United States and specifically in LA, we keep citing LA because that's where the bulk of it happens. It's primarily a fast fashion resource right now because it's even faster. I mean, obviously it's like already here. But you know, like as I've said, there are other things happening here. So, Amy, like, what is your experience with manufacturing in the USA? Well, like my direct experience over like what we were talking about last time about doing this for about 17 years. So considering 17 years kind of serving the same function for different um, for different brands, my experience is minimal. Um, and that really comes down to, you know, earlier you cited that um, more than 95 percent of clothes sold here imports. (laughs) So if you look and you go like, okay, what is that little chunk that's being made here? Um, So for me, it's kind of coming down to two camps. There's the fast camp and there's the good camp. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the fast camp, which is really leaning on that fast fashion business, um, you know, private label, there's not a lot of checks and balances. Um, 
And thankfully, the people in the good camp who want to make great quality product that is going to last, that's going to be made by skilled workers that are proud of their craft, are also working on oversight because it shouldn't be two seventy-seven an hour. How is anyone going to live off of that? I mean, why is the factory accepting the orders from Fashion Nova at that rate? I just you can't you can't be a brand and say I got this thing made fast and cheap, but I don't know how it happened. Yeah, I think I mean I would say that Fashion Nova is just as complicit as that factory. Like as you're saying, the factory shouldn't have accepted the order, but. They probably, you know, you hear that you're going to get to make something for a big brand and you just jump on it. Yeah. Uh, And I think that, you know, the factory accepted that deal knowing there was no way they were going to pay a living wage. But they've probably never been paying a livable wage. So I don't know if Fashion Nova would have transparency into that. But then again, like this is in the same city where their buyers are working. Well, yeah. I mean, transparency is one thing because you can't be two places at once. You got to, you know, be in your office working with your team, but you need to be able to go out onto the floor. And especially with it being in LA, it's, it's relatively accessible. But again, like I was saying before about, you know, getting those checks and balances for my overseas partners, we don't have the same regulations. And then in in some cases, the standards that have set are kind of ridiculous with regards to, you know, you have to have this printer needs to be five feet away from the trash can and things like that, where, you know, you really want the people that are working to make things good. (laughs) And and when I say good, I'm not just talking about product because there's beautiful product that you can get made in the USA. And then there's people who are staking their reputation on the ethical side of things and making sure that, you know, like let's focus less about the trash can and the printer and more about what the, what the federal minimum wages, what the state minimum wages, what sick time is recycling fabrics, reducing wastage, all these different things that you would, you would hope would come out. These are, this is what needs to happen in order for things to really come back and for things to stay and for the reputation that was, you know, tarnished by American apparel and not at all helped by Fashion Nova's case to really go like, okay, you know, if, if we are patriotic, let's back that shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's pay people. Yes. Let's. And make nice stuff. (laughs) Let's make some nicer stuff. You know, again, that comes back to, um, the the price people are willing to pay for their clothing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a story we just keep telling over and over. If you are only willing to pay $20 for a pair of jeans, this is what's going to happen. You know, if you only want to pay $7 for a tank top, yeah. I mean, I've seen tank tops at uh, Forever 21, they're like $3. Nothing good's happening there. If, if that's all you're paying, something's being lost in the process. Yeah. And, and we really did walk this path, you know, from, from the manufacturing side and the consumer side, we walked it hand in hand because once we had the opportunity with trade opening up quotas being lifted, uh, duties going away, we were able to make things cheaper. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I I don't know. You said you listened to our first episodes. You know, I talked about how while everything else we buy has become a lot more expensive, like almost doubled in price since the 90s, clothes are cheaper. And like that, that shouldn't be happening. (laughs) And it's because that's what we've demanded. That's what we've told retailers we want. Yes. And, and I think you had said it, I don't know, any of any of our many conversations, you know, our 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 dollar, our buying power is is as strong, if not as stronger than our vote. Mm-hmm. So it really yes. takes a collective mentality to say, you know, I don't believe in this. This is not an ethical business practice. What can I do? Where am I gonna spend my money? Made in the USA, is it it's basically then it's just like a marketing message because there really is no like level of superiority here. We've already established that you can get all kinds of amazing product made in other countries. So why is it something that people tout? I mean, it's good marketing. It is. And, and, and truly you can find made in the USA product that is now, maybe it's not fair to say it's superior quality because are we really looking apples to apples here? But it's it's good or great quality. That is a fair assessment, and you can find that. But you're not going to find that 
in fast fashion retailers. Absolutely. And I do think like there is, there are a lot of great reasons to bring apparel manufacturing back to the United States. And the primary one would be, you know, carbon footprint because mm-hmm. we're not relying on airplanes and boats in the same way, but it would involve us having to make a big shift away from these cheap, fast fashion clothes. Yeah, just kind of overall, if you're looking at, you know, bringing, you know, when you say bringing manufacturing back to the United States, it's that's a really broad term, right? So <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I kind of look at it like, but is this the manufacturing? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, I, I think is, that probably. Is, is this what we want- mean? Yeah. I think I think they mean like cars and air conditioners and stuff. God, Americans buy a lot of clothing. You know, it's an industry that I think you don't hear a lot of politicians talking about because it's like soft and girly in their minds. But it could be a job driver to a certain yeah. extent. So well the other the other piece of this puzzle is yeah, you could start sewing things here, but where are most of your raw materials going to come from? Like, what about the fabric and the trims? Well, that's what I was just thinking when you said, you know, if we brought it back here, we can reduce the carbon emissions, but you know, can you? Um, Yeah. I I (laughs) don't know. Not if you're also trucking in all those huge bolts of fabric and, and branded buttons and YKK zippers, because none of that stuff's made here. Right. And so, you know, what is grown here is a lot of cotton. And that might surprise people, but that's still that's still a huge a huge thing for the United States. We can so basically when we're talking about you know some preferential trade agreements like NAFTA and CAFTA, where there's no duty, the rules for that is that uh, what's called yarn forward. It means that the yarn used to make the fabric must originate in a NAFTA country. So we can grow cotton here and send it to Mexico and it gets turned into uh, yarn and fabric and it's cut and sewn in the USA and you still get the duty benefit. And because it was cut and sewn and the cotton was grown in the USA, it's, it's made in the USA, but it's still going to travel back and forth and it's still going to go probably to a separate facility for wash and dye. We still got to bring in trims from China because we're not all of a sudden going to open a bunch of button and zipper factories. We, we could, you could, but it would be it would be a big thing, and it's not going to happen overnight. It would yeah. be a huge shift, and you'd also have to find people willing to work in the button and zipper factory. Absolutely, and and you know when we were talking before about like what vertical means, and in terms of what a factory means, we also kind of can like apply that logic to you know what is what does vertical mean for the USA? Because it doesn't mean fully wholly made in the USA. It doesn't mean it's better. It definitely can mean it's good. It can mean it's great. But it doesn't mean that it it's all U.S. origin. I mean, that's that's just not really probable. So in your expert opinion, would you rather work with a domestic factory or an international factory and, and why? Yeah, this is interesting to me because when it's just like a like a my quick reaction answer is internationally. And that's because we've got the infrastructure is there. I know my regions, I know what can be made where, um, the resources that they have, they have the materials, they have the machinery, they have the skilled labor. It's a lot easier. It's, it's plug and play. That being said, you know, what I'm working on right now, we do want to be able to kind of tell that story of the craftsmanship and, and local sewers and, you know, not only designed in California, but produced in California. So that's kind of where we go back to like, you know, the, the fast versus good. And, you know, I want to work domestically, but I only want to work with the people that I think are part of the solution. I definitely see people all the time who are like, you should only buy clothes that made in the USA and then everything will be great. And it's like, well, actually, you know what, like that's almost impossible at this point. Yeah, even even working, even looking for for um, you know near future state for myself to be working with these people that are can confirm and show me and and are really advocating for ethical, fair business practices. It's going to cost me more to work with them because they're going to need to pay their people, right? I'm going to have to bring the fabric in and that's fine, but that fabric's going to be a little bit more expensive mm-hmm. now because I've got to add freight to it. 
and I want to tell a story about this, right? As I'm as I'm selling it, so there's going to be some mm-hmm. marketing dollars accounted for in that cost. Um, it's just going to be more expensive. You're going to get something better at a higher price point domestically made than you will something you know fast fashion domestically made. But you know, it's just it's not a fair assessment to say you know America first, America only. We, we, we opened that floodgate in the nineties. You can't, you know, you, you're sticking your finger in the dam with those types of comments. Like it's just, <laughs> it's not going anywhere. It's not going away. Right. And I, and I think it's important to call out too, that it's, it's not just the apparel industry that has moved overseas and, and relies so much on overseas for all of its components. I mean, I was reading an article this week about how almost all of our medications are made in China as well and our medical supplies. And so when people are pushing, you know, when politicians are pushing for this idea that we should break up with China mm-hmm. over what, I'm not really sure. It, it, it's just not possible at this point. No, and consider too, like, again, uh, you know, the, if the manufacturing, the actual process of taking that concept and making it a tangible thing that can be imported, that's happening overseas. What's happening domestically? You know, the, 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 the research that for your, um, uh, pharmaceutical example, like the research is happening here, the concepting, you know, for, for apparel, for automotive, the design, there's less manual work. You know, you look at, um, country like China, for an example, and they're executing, they're executing on American innovation. Um, you know, and that, that goes from automotive, pharmaceuticals, apparel, it's, it's everything, right? Uh, we're, we're the ones that are concepting, testing, thinking it through. Um, and, and it's really just a matter of another partner in the overall supply chain. Right. Right. I mean, it it just comes down to people who are like, are you globalist or are you America first? It seems to me that being America first, there is very problematic on a multitude. It just seems like a weird, it's a weird choice to have to make. I know. Well, I I also am like, well, we all live on the same planet. (laughs) Right. <laughs> you know, I feel like Americans want to, they want to get stuff made in the U.S. and they want to be mean to China and they don't want to let in immigrants, but they also want to be able to travel all over the world and, and be free everywhere they go. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think so either. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we, there, there are opportunities to, to make things in America. And like I said, I mean, you, you can, can really produce some kick-ass stuff, but it's, you cannot pivot from, 95 plus percent gone to, to back here in, in one administration, no matter what the category is. Oh, absolutely. No matter how you, how much you raise the tariffs, this is a long-term project. I mean, there aren't even factories to make this stuff in and you can't build a factory in six months. I mean, maybe you could, but then are you also going to have all the equipment? Uh, Are you going to be able to train the staff? Because Americans are aren't skilled in the textile industry. They've never had to. Where, yeah. Where, where are you getting, where are you getting the staff from? I mean, that's really, you know, that's the, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, and you know, one thing that everybody I've talked to so far talks about when it comes to say China and, and not just China, but other countries is that the people who are sewing there are so skilled. You know, we, we as Americans tend to think of sewing as like something any anyone can do. And that's just simply not true. I mean, it's, it's a craft in its own right. Yeah. We're not just going to like open the factory and everyone's going to start the first day and they're going to be whipping out all this amazing product. Like that's just, just not feasible. The learning curve, the investment in training and development for those teams would not only take a long time, it'd be really expensive. And once again, not saying that it shouldn't happen. I, I mean, I think that would be great. I think we're finding right now in the United States that too many of our jobs are service related, which means they're kind of not very reliable. And so if we could bring manufacturing back over several many years, it would supply jobs for people that don't exist right now that might be more stable, might pay better. I, I, I don't know. I, I think... Right now, if you're just like, I only buy stuff in the made, that's made in the USA, well, good luck. I guess you're just shopping at Fashion Nova. I, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and then, and then what are you getting for that? I mean, you really feel you're 
I don't know. I don't know. From my point of view, it's it's kind of like you can you can stand on that moral high ground, but you can't do it at a fast fashion price point. You've just negated no. your entire argument. But no, you know, absolutely. With regards to you know, I, we keep coming back to LA specifically. You know, it was once the sports were capital of the world. You know, that hasn't been the case since the '90s, but we're at least still the sports were capital of of North America. And um, I kind of liken what's happening in Los Angeles with the people who are trying to make things better to kind of like, uh, like the microbreweries and craft beer, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. became, it was just something that was kind of happening on the side and, and it's picked up momentum and now it's, it's its own thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so I kind of liken it to that because there's people that are just, I mean, I actually know somebody who's manufacturing with partners in Los Angeles, but also investing in uh, cotton fields in the South. I mean, that's how vertical he wants to become eventually. And wow. um, yeah, really cool things that are happening with, with people that you're having these conversations where they're, you know, they're buying these machines and kind of bringing them to do certain things, or um, they're hiring the, the workers that are maybe not as fast and young, but they're highly skilled. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, the more you get into the conversation and the more you, uh, more time you spend meeting people within that little subsect in LA, the more energized you feel by it. So I feel hopeful. I, I do too. I mean, I think that's great to hear because LA still does have the facilities and the space to rebuild this industry, you know, and I do believe that a lot of good change could come out of all the bullshit we're dealing with right now. One of those things could be people who are passionate about, you know, ethical manufacturing and sustainability and doing things the right way. Like they can begin to push that envelope and make those things happen here, but they're only going to happen if we on the side of like the customer side are going to spend the money. Yeah. And maybe long-term it could become a little bit cheaper, but it's never going to be a $3 tank top ever. It never will be. It never will be. And, and for the people that are, that are kind of putting their necks out there and they're working with, you know, local government and, and doing the things that they want to, they can do, you know, upcycling, recycling the the fabrics to be used for other purposes like insulation and homes and things like that. These are the people that, you know, they're doing it because they don't have to do it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They have the choice. They could just be burning and churning fast fashion. They have the square footage. They have the workers. They have the machines. They're making a mm-hmm. choice to do something different. That makes me so excited about the future. I think it's really important for all of us who are buying clothes for ourselves or even buying clothes as a career to really start to think about that as customers, we need to use our money as a vote. We need to vote for these companies that are doing things this good way. And sometimes that means stuff's made in the USA and sometimes it means it's not. If, if we really believe that we could bring the fashion industry back to the U.S., it's not going to happen if we're not willing to spend the money and support those brands. Absolutely. Also, I, I think about when I was a teenager, like clothes seemed so expensive to me. You know, like you couldn't buy something every week, maybe not even every month. And we're so accustomed to being able to like go every weekend and buy a new outfit to wear that weekend. I mean, that is just crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How, how disposable. I mean, if you ask my mom, you know, when I was a teenager, clothes were like the most expensive thing. So we definitely weren't buying them. We were thrifting. Yeah. Yeah. It was a treat. It, it was, was like special. back to school shopping at like an outlet. Yeah. Otherwise it was thrifting and my mom was a seamstress. So she sewed all our clothes and it was like, I was in high school and I was like, can I, can I please buy some clothes now? <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been in our lifetimes that the shift in, into fast fashion happened. I mean, I definitely remember a period in my life where every Friday I'd go to like forever 21 or somewhere similar and buy a bag of clothes for that weekend. Yeah. And now I, I feel like now that we are quarantined, that seems extra crazy. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So maybe this is going to be a good reset button for all of us and we can save our money and buy nicer things. I think that would be a really amazing thing to see because I think that whether or not we've enjoyed all kind of being stuck at home or safer at home, however you want to put it, um, 
I think it really has forced us into that perspective, right? I, I mean, I hope, I hope. I think it can't all be terrible and maybe maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but in my own life experience, bad things always result in something good down the line, even if you don't recognize it right away. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like a totally separate can of worms we could probably elect to not open, but you know, how, how COVID is going to change, uh, the workforce, you know, um, Brooks brothers filed for bankruptcy. Denim's not selling well. People aren't going to want to go back to wearing what they were before. So I think that with that in mind, if, if the consumer really wants to vote with their dollar, buy whatever you want to buy, but go ahead and look into the brand. Every brand is, is trying to tell you their story through their marketing on their website. And it doesn't take too much digging to find out who's doing something right and, and who's a little suspicious. One thing that blows my mind continuously, and it kind of goes back to that American Apparel conversation, where people knew that really bad things were happening there, but they still bought the clothes all the time. And I just think we've all been too complacent for too long. And I know that we care but maybe not enough to like, we can turn our brains off and just go buy something anyway, because it makes us feel cute. We can't do that anymore. And I think, you know, one of the benefits of some of this cancel culture is that maybe it will force brands to turn it around and not be assholes and not sexually harass their employees or underpay their black employees or hate fat people or whatever else they're, they're, they're doing behind the scenes. Yeah, a lot of people have raised the stakes and it's time for for brands to really uh, step it up. It's been amazing to talk to you both about production and Made in the USA. Do you have any final wise thoughts for all of our listeners? Oh my gosh, no pressure. Just, you know, just shop smart, whatever that means to you, whether it's consuming less, uh, upcycling, thrifting, researching your brands, it's it's your dollar and it's going to go a lot farther than you think it is in the long term. Awesome. I love that. That's my advice to everyone too. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Amy. It was just so great to talk to you about business. It's always good to talk to you, Amanda. We usually we talk about Barbies, but we really branched out this time. Well, we got a whole other <laughs> podcast series coming up for that, apparently. <laughs> our Barbie podcast. Yeah, guys, uh, coming Ooh. in 2021, it's our Barbie podcast. Oh, I'm ready right now. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about our last episode, going back to Amy's motto of cheap, fast, or good. You get to pick two. And I'm thinking specifically of how the fashion industry has shifted into doing things as fast as possible. We know that the retailers and brands that we don't think of as fast fashion were sort of pushed by the tsunami of fast fashion into adopting a lot of fast fashion practices, like waiting until the last minute to place orders because they are so afraid of buying the wrong thing or God forbid, missing a trend. And this fear of making a mistake has led to more air shipping and cheaper fabrics and even cheaper sewing to offset the cost of air shipping. So already brands that we don't think of as fast fashion, brands whose quality we trust is better and long lasting, are essentially selling us cheap fast fashion, but at a higher price. I'm worried that COVID is going to push these retailers into even faster fashion at a greater rate. Well, Why? Okay, so take the anxiety of OMG, what if I buy the wrong thing or miss a trend and multiply that by 100 or maybe even 1,000 and you've got the high-intensity nonstop fear of buying in the era of COVID. For one, if you place an order too far in advance, there might be another lockdown. Stores will close and then you're left with a ton of product that can't sell. That's what's kind of going on right now, right? Or maybe the COVID, the COVID, I guess that's what I call it now, is still raging through the holiday season and no one's buying party dresses and cashmere sweaters and scarves and gloves. So you have to mark it down to 70% off to get rid of it. I mean, there's just too much unpredictability right now. This is pushing brands and retailers to place their orders even closer to the time of delivery, just in case. So we're looking at even more aired-in shipments, even more cheap stock fabrics, faster sewing, less fittings, and sample reviews, like forget about it, those are gone, right? 
All in all, a lower quality product that won't stand the test of time for the same price we were paying for better products before all this started. I don't want COVID to push brands and retailers out of business. I mean, selfishly, I would like to have a job again someday. I also don't want all my friends to be out of jobs permanently too. It could be devastating for the economy. But then again, you know, maybe we could all start that commune we've been talking about for years. I mean, that would be a silver lining. But I do want us to make better decisions about what we buy as customers. To read all the fine print on the product page. To say no to synthetic fabrics or things we just don't 100% love. To discover new brands that are trying their hardest to do it right. Let's help them get through this crisis by giving them our money. And let's force the other guys the places that are being forced to turn into faster fashion, let's force them to do better, to take their time, to just let product live on the sales floor longer, to stop stuffing us with acrylic sweaters and semi-sheer t-shirts just because they drive margin. Okay, that's my pep talk. I did want to call out a few brands that make product in the USA and are doing a really great job. First off is Big Bud Press. It's made in LA, ethically produced, Fair wages and good working conditions. Like they kind of started this renaissance a few years ago. Another one is Tuesday of California, formerly known as Tuesday Bassin. Made in LA. They use dead stock fabrics and or California made fabrics whenever possible. Once again, ethically produced. And lastly, Christy Dawn. They use dead stock fabrics made in LA. They really try to do better and better in terms of sustainable processes. And as far as I can tell, everything is ethically made as well. This is just the start of a list I want to build. If you have a brand to suggest, hit me up. My friend Kim, who you'll meet in a future episode, thinks I should start a directory of brands that are doing a better job so we can cast our votes in favor of how they do things. I'm definitely going to need your help to get that done. Okay, I wanted you to notice that I left out Reformation. I have a lot of problems with that brand, and probably at this point, so do you. They use a lot of greenwashing. They have a terrible internal culture. And honestly, I think they're just really expensive fast fashion. That's the end of this episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Amy, for spending hours recording with me. I'm so grateful that I have so many smart and supportive friends. And speaking of smart and supportive friends, thanks to Dustin Travis White. He's not only my friend, he's also my husband. He created our theme music, taught me how to edit audio, and he does all our final mixes. Do you have something to add to the conversation? I bet you do. Email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. You could even just send me a photo of your cat. I mean, I will definitely love it. Also, give us a follow on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. We're on Twitter at Close Horse Pod, but to be fair, all I've done so far is retweet stuff. I just don't know what to do. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating and maybe even a review on iTunes. Through the magic of algorithms, we reach new listeners. I don't know how it works, but I heard it works. <laughs> and please tell a friend. Let's spread the gospel of not giving money to assholes. Bye. Bye.